before I begin, we teach and preach expositionally through books of the Bible. So I trust, and we publish a week ahead of time, sermon text. So I trust that you have taken that into consideration for your own children who are present today. I promise to keep this conversation as PG as possible, but as clear as possible. We live in a culture obsessed with sex and sexuality, so much so that our sexuality defines our identity. So many find their identity as a person and whether they are having sex or with whom they are. Over the last 60 years in America, particularly and across Western civilization, it has become apparent that culture has been centered around one's sexuality in such a way that our culture has sought to find new ways to pervert and distort God's original intent with our sexuality. The scripture, however, is clear, as we will see today, that sexual relationships are only to take place within the confines of a monogamous, heterosexual marriage. As we study the scriptures, we find the pervasive and permissive culture around us is not all that new. While it may be widespread today as a culture to be obsessed with sexuality and see it everywhere we go, on billboards, to subway station signs and advertisements, to turning on the TV or listening to the radio, or just in our day-to-day conversations, it is truly pervasive and truly permissive. Al Mohler calls it the sexual revolution, as many have called it over the last 60 years. And that revolution, he writes, will never be enough. In other words, those who are the sexual revolutionaries of our day will not stop until every form of sexual perversion is permissible under the sun. But, having a good and robust understanding of the depravity of man, and knowing your Bible well will equip you to face the challenges in your own heart and in the world around you. Because as you read your Bible, you will find that sexual sin is as old as the Garden of Eden. There, when man introduced, was introduced to the temptation, and Adam and Eve fell from their original innocence, so began the long road to today. As we heard in the text earlier in Romans, I almost have to laugh, because when I read that text, it is so true. Paul writes there, he says, and coming up, inventing new ways... To distort God's original intent. Isn't that true of our own day? Maybe even of your own heart? Trying to come up with new ways to distort God's original intent. Paul is writing to a church in a city that is known for sexual sin. Ingrained in the Roman culture was idolatry, the worship of Artemis there in Ephesus. And often at the temples where prostitution was rampantly occurring. They tied worship and sex together in more explicit ways than we do in our own culture, though we also connect worship with sexuality. But as we grow frustrated with the world around us, as Christians, as we see this ongoing and progressive change around us, we could kind of grow, I think, frustrated and maybe perhaps annoyed. We must be clear, rather, I think, on what the Bible teaches about human sexuality. Uh, Perhaps the reason why we're in such a bad place is because the church has been so silent on this topic. From the silent decades of the 60s and 70s to the purity movements in the 80s and 90s to the whatever movements in the 2000s and beyond. The problem 
brothers and sisters, isn't out there. The problem's in our own hearts. The problem is, is churches have for so long allowed sinful relationships to continue within the confines of members rather than dealing with them. I don't know how many stories or how many churches I've pastored in where I've heard about some of the most grotesque sins among members of the local church that go unchecked and undisciplined. Brothers and sisters, we have no leg to stand on if we as a church are not committed to holiness in this area. If we are not willing to call one another to repentance and faith and to live clean lives before a holy God. This morning, I hope as we study this passage that we grow hopeful with gratitude in our hearts, but with humility, knowing that such were some of us. So this is not going to be a sermon pointing at the world, but pointing at you and pointing at me. I must confess this passage I knew was coming and being particularly an area in my own life where I have struggled. And maybe you have as well. It is encouraging to hear God's word and to know there is hope. To know that you and I can be free from our former sins. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been learning how to walk in light how to walk in light of our newfound life in Jesus Christ. We've learned that our new identity in Christ brings about a new way of living. Paul has made explicitly clear throughout this passage, or throughout this chapter rather, that when one puts their faith in Jesus Christ, it begins a new way of living. There truly are two ways to live in life, our way or God's way. And Paul lays out by the power of the Spirit this new way where believers are empowered to take off their former sins and to put on new righteous robes after the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul summarizes this new way of living in chapter 5 and verse 2 by exhorting us to walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. To walk in love then is to be an imitator of God. To imitate God and his love for us in Christ. This is what we thought about last week in our passage. When we love others, we are most like our heavenly father. Well, as Paul now begins to transition from walking, he's going to change his metaphors. From taking off to putting on. He's going to shift now in chapter 5 to darkness and light. He's going to say, walk in light. Walk in the light. When one walks in the light, everything's exposed. You can see it, right? If you're in the light, you can see that you maybe didn't take a shower. Uh, When you're in the light, you can see that your clothes maybe are are dirty. You you see, as Christians, we want to walk in the light because it exposes our sin and helps us purify us and make us holy. And what Paul here is exhorting us in this text this morning is is to flee from the darkness that we've been delivered from. Lest we be tempted to put on our old ways. Paul offers us in this text a solemn and serious warning. So friends, I don't want you to leave here without this sort of weighty passage. This is a serious text that if you just passively, cold-heartedly, hard-heartedly, just kind of brush it off. Friend, I fear for your soul eternally. Paul is clear. If you go down that old road again, it does not lead to life, but to death. Well, let's read it. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. We're going to consider verses 3 through 6 this morning. And then in two weeks, we'll continue in verse 7 through 14. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This passage warns you. It warns you. It warns you against returning to your former sins. By reminding you that if you go down that road, you have no inheritance in Christ. And you still have the judgment of God to look forward to. The purpose of this our time this morning is to warn us. To warn us about the dangers of sexual sin. About the dangers of falling into our former sins. By motivating us to flee sin. So this morning, I pray the Spirit of God will awaken your heart to run from your sin. Paul outlines here a very clear warning. He uses language in a careful way, in a very emphatic way, to warn Christians about returning to their former sins. He does it in two ways. First, by urging us to flee our sin, to run from it. And secondly, by giving us two motivations. You'll see in the passage six sins to avoid and two motivations or two reasons why you should avoid them. First, if you're taking notes, two points. Flee your sins or face the dire consequences. Flee your sins or face the dire consequences. In verses 3 and 4, Paul outlines their former sins. On the very beginning, I want, to, I want you to make sure you hear me clearly because I know sometimes preachers are misquoted. Paul is not talking about the world. He's talking about church members. There's hope here in this passage, okay? So don't be discouraged this morning that God only saves saints. He doesn't. He saves messed up, wretched people and makes them saints. So don't get confused this morning. But he begins in verse 3 and tells us to flee sexual sin by being holy. He begins this new, new section. I want you to notice those three words. I told you there were six of them. In verse 3, there's three. Sexual immorality, all impurity, or covetousness. All of these words in the English language imply some difference. But what Paul is referring to is sexual sin in its varied forms. In other words, the first there is Paul's typical word he uses in every one of his vice list in the New Testament is headed by sexual immorality. I wonder why that is. Because men and women always, it isn't a Western culture, it isn't an American problem, it's a human condition problem. We all struggle with sexual immorality. Impurity and covetousness seek to define in, in clear ways what Paul is further referring to in sexual immorality. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Or again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. From the Old Testament through the New Testament, sexual sin is sexual relationships that are outside of the confines of a heterosexual marriage are condemned. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is clear on this. I must say this because there are many Christians today 
who are saying that the Bible doesn't teach that certain sexual sin is a sin. But throughout the the Bible, and particularly throughout 2,000 years of Orthodox Christian teaching, the church has been clear, emphatic, and one standard that sexual immorality, I'm quoting here one author, is any kind of sexual activity outside of a committed marriage relationship. And in our day and age, we have to add heterosexual marriage relationship because it's been confused in our culture. Paul here is further describing what he means, particularly here, all impurity. Even if one would try to change the definition of what sexual immorality means, Paul further clarifies it by saying all impurity. Impurity clearly means that which is impure, not pure, not normal, contrary to nature, contrary to biology. That's Paul's point. Biologically, God has created us male and female, not some version in between that. Or God has created us and, and created us in such a way to enjoy certain things in a particular setting under a particular confines. One author defines this all impurity as this unrestrained or rather covetousness. As unrestrained sexual greed, whereby a person assumes that others exist for his or her own gratification. In the Ten Commandments, we are not, we're clearly spelled out, right? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, right? That was the King James Version. Uh, right? Don't covet. Covetness is desiring that which is not yours, that which you have no right to, that which is off limits. Paul here is emphatically calling the church away from their own sinful gratifications and to be satisfied and gratified in Christ alone. You have been taught as a sinner because of your depraved sinful nature that you should do whatever feels right. That you should do whatever's good. If it's good, feels good, do it. Friends, we could just look to so many examples of doing things that feel good are really dumb. It might feel good to to, uh, do drugs, but we know the devastating consequences. It might feel good to get drunk, but it leads to devastating consequences. In chapter 4 and verse 19, Paul says this. He says that they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul is very clear in this passage that such sins should not be named among God's people. Look at what he writes here in verse 3. He says it should not even be named among you. In other words, he's saying shouldn't be talking about it. Now, what he's, he, some have wrongly taken this passage and said, oh, we shouldn't talk about it. That's not what he means. What he's, what he's meaning is that we should be living such holy and pure lives that this doesn't come up in our conversations. You know, this isn't a topic that we're, we're regularly talking about. Because we're living holy lives and we're around people that just aren't struggling with this. Because we're all pursuing. Paul is saying, look, don't even get around that stuff. You need to run far from that stuff. It shouldn't even be on your lips. I want to distinguish between addressing issues and actually talking about it in a way that's good. Does that make sense? So our culture talks about sexuality in a way that identifies who they are. Right? I am transgender. I am a homosexual. I am a heterosexual. I am a whatever. I'm, right? You see that. Our culture is identified by these sins. As Christians, we are not identified in that way. We are identified as in Christ. It's who we are. So we're not identified by our sexual desires. In fact, you are no more less than a human being if you are or are not having sex. Does that make sense? You see the distinguishing? Because so many in our culture pursue marriage relationships in that way. 
And so when it's not happening, their marriage is failing. Brothers, this your marriage has should not be dependent upon that. Paul is emphatically clear here. But he's also encouraging. Notice the encouraging word there in verse 3. As is proper among saints. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say as is proper among the saints. So he's not referring to a group of people. He's referring to the quality or characteristic of the people. He's saying you're holy. What are you doing around hanging around unholy things? You are holy. You are a saint. You are a holy one. You are set apart. You are distinct. You are different. Why are you being this way like the world? You have been called out of darkness and into light. In other words, what Paul is saying is be who you are in Christ. You are holy. Do not be unholy. Now, to be clear, I, I want to be very clear, and, and I quoted one author here because he, I think, captures this well. One author writes this, God is not against sex. He invented it as the thrilling and intimate glue for the lifelong union of one man and one woman in marriage. God is simply against abusing his beautiful gift because sex is intended as the display of his wisdom in bringing God's people under the blessing of Christ's rule. When sex is mess, misused, our creator knows that people will soon get hurt. Friends, that is so true. When, when sex is used permissively in our culture outside of the confines of marriage, people will get hurt. And before we move on, we need to look at what repentance means. I want to be very clear here between desire and action. This morning, Paul is not pointing his finger and saying, if you struggle with sexual temptation, you will not inherit. He says, if you indulge in your sexual desires, you will not inherit. There's some confusion today on whether or not one could be, or whether one, let me back up. There's some confusion today on whether or not one could be a Christian saved bona fide believer and struggle with same-sex attraction friend the bible is clear you can be a christian and struggle with same-sex attraction the question is are you indulging the desire no more than those who struggle with heterosexual desires or others What the Bible calls us to do is put to death those desires. To flee those desires. But friend, those temptations are going to continue to come until Jesus comes. The enemy is still going to come. He's going to send them. So this morning, I want you to know that if you're struggling with same-sex desires. And you understand yourself to be a Christian. You've repented and trusted. And you are not dissolved. You're not, you're not giving yourself into those desires. Friend, you are welcome here and Jesus welcomes you. Believe in him. Don't indulge those desires. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with looking at pornography. Friend, I want you to know Jesus can deliver you from that. He can save you from that. Brother or sister, if this morning you are caught in the snare of pornography, know that Jesus can deliver you from that. That you have been set free and you are free indeed. Do not allow the enemy to convince you that you are chained and ensnared. Confess those sins. Bring them into the light. Run. Let me remind you that your sexual desires will never satisfy you. Pornography will never, desire, will never satisfy you. It is a contrary to nature. Your desire for your co-worker will never satisfy you. Your desire for your neighbor's wife will never satisfy you. Your desire for things that are not yours will never satisfy you. 
Friend, are you currently flirting with an affair? A room this size, I'm not so naive to believe that there's not one struggling in these ways. Or two or three or more. You see, that's the problem. We assume everyone's doing okay. And if you come in here every week assuming that everyone around you is okay, and you're okay, then we're not okay. Friend, do not believe the devil's lie that no one will ever know about your secret sexual sins. You see, the enemy has a dirty little trick he likes to play. You see, the one that brought you into the darkness is the same one that will expose you to the light. He's the same one that will will flip the light switch on you and say, ha ha, look here. See that believer that I caught in sin? You see, he's not, I mean, he wants to get us. You know how much reproach it brings upon the name of Jesus when believers are ensnared in these kind of sins? Remember, the enemy's goal is to steal, to kill, and destroy Remember that every time you're tempted in those sexual desires. Remember every time you're tempted to covetousness. That this will only destroy me. Heed Solomon's warning to his son. Don't even go by her house. Don't go down the street. Don't even look down the street, he tells her. Don't even go to the fence. Don't, just don't even go outside. But he does. And he makes his way down the street. And there she waits to devour him. Perhaps you were once known for your pervasive sexual sins. Friend, if you've repented and trusted in Christ, then I didn't want to encourage you with the hope of the gospel. That is not you anymore. Do not be like the world and define yourself by your desire. I am so thankful for Sam Asbury, who, who says, you know, I, he's a pastor in, in England. And he struggled, he's a pastor. He struggles with same-sex attraction. And Sam is so helpful because he, he, said, he says this line. He says, you know, no, no, I, I'm not a pastor who struggles with same-sex desires. I'm a pastor. No, he didn't use the word pastor. He says, I'm a, I, I, I'm a child of God who in Christ I find my identity. All those other things. That doesn't identify who I am. Brother, sister, let us not be identified with our struggles. Identify who you are in Christ. That's who you are. You're a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Well, Paul continues in verse 4. We could spend much more time thinking about this. But in verse 4, Paul makes very clear... And he continues, verse 4 might seem that it's a little out of sorts here. He continues, he writes, Let therefore there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. It might seem that Paul's just kind of moving along to something else, but he's not. All of these words that Paul uses are in the context of a perverse sexual situation. In other words, uh, dirty minds have dirty mouths. In connection with sensual lifestyles, Paul further warns against sexualized speech. Speech that is is grotesque. Speech that is making, I believe, light of sexual lifestyles. I I listen to the briefing often, uh, Al Mohler's uh, daily podcast. Many of you, I know, do as well. And I always laugh. He'll have these lines in here as he's reading these news articles. He'll say, well, I'm not going to read the rest of this article because it goes into graphic detail. In other words, it's a good illustration of those that are in the sexual revolution and their desire to use grotesque and graphic detail when it's unnecessary and unneeded. Furthermore, as Paul says, no crude joking, he does not mean that humor is wrong. The Bible is very clear that humor is good. God created us to laugh. But one of the great tests that the scriptures often give is what entertains you. What are you laughing at? See, what you laugh at, what you find entertaining, reveals really 
Watch about your own hearts. As he has throughout these exhortations, he follows up these sort of negative commands. Avoid this by putting on this. And as Christians, we are to take off our former way of speaking, our, our, our filthiness, our foolish talk, our crude joking, our sort of heightened sensual voices and, and words, and to put on rather gratitude. Now, there is some debate whether or not gratitude, thanksgiving, is connected merely to these three sins. I am inclined to believe that they're connected to the whole list, the six sins that he lists, as following Paul's pattern of listing sins and then giving a positive exhortation. And so as Christians, our positive response, how you and I fight against, flee against sexual sin and per- pervasively poisonous speech, sinful speech, is through gratitude. It really makes sense, doesn't it? If you are driven by your depraved desires, and then you come and you see with gratitude all the gifts God has given you, you begin to say, well, I don't need that. God's given me everything I need. Do you understand why Paul says that covetousness is idolatry? Because when you covet something you don't have, you say, God, you stink at being God. That's why I mentioned earlier in the offering time that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, from whom there is no changing shadow due to change. You understand that when you grumble because you don't have and you want because you don't have, that you are are pointing your finger at God and saying, God, you are not that giver of every good gift. We need to find that a heart of gratitude. When you and I normalize sexual sins, when you and I celebrate promiscuity, we need to flee that. And we need to find gratitude in the gift of marriage that God has given us, even of those here this morning who are not married. You know, so often, I I remember early on in preaching, uh, someone came to me and and they said, hey, pastor, there, there ain't a lot of married people here and you're preaching on marriage. What's the deal? And I was like, well, because I believe the Bible is, uh, teaches us that Christians uh, do life together, not apart. And see, you think about your Christianity as just an individual, you and Jesus. But I see it as a corporate thing. So I need unmarried people to exhort even the married people to be faithful in marriage. Does that make sense? So this morning, if you aren't married, if you're a widow or you're a single adult, you need to understand what marriage is because you need to celebrate godly marriage you and i need to champion it across the board everyone because it's god's plan for his creation we're to give thanks as paul writes later in chapter five always and for everything to god the father in the name of the lord jesus brothers and sisters are you thankful for the gifts that god has given you do you express that gratitude to god or perhaps are you an idolater who's turned sex sexuality and sensuality and greed into what you worship rather than the gift that God has given you. Friend, does your speech reflect a clean heart before God? Jesus said, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. What do you find funny? What do you, what do you sit in and are entertained by? What entertains you? Is it these pervasively sexual sins? Do you, you watch, do you inter, watch entertainment, that television shows and movies? You know, it's, it's so often as a culture, what we do is we desensitize R-rated movies, mature audiences. Bro, let me just say you're not a mature folk, all right? You're not a mature enough saint. Well, why would we expose ourselves willingly to pornography? Why would we willingly sit and watch a television show that, that, that celebrates sexual sin and laugh at it? When we know in reality, if that was true, 
In our lives, it would destroy and devastate us. Yet we sit and laugh at it and use it as entertainment. I'm guilty of this as well. Brothers and sisters, let us have clean hearts by exposing ourselves to clean things for God's glory and his love. Friends, this is not about being a legalist. It's not about being a prude. It's not about, you know, just like not having TV in our homes, anything silly like that. What this is about is about guarding our eyes and our ears so that we get to heaven. That's what this is about. So brothers and sisters, let us flee our former sins. Let us not flirt with sin, but flee from it. These sins are not who you are anymore. Let us live in light of our new identity in Christ. Well, in case you're unconvinced to flee, let's go to Paul's motivations now. Paul is very clear in verses 5 and 6. He, he offers us a stern motivation, two motivations. Do not be deceived. Judgment day is coming. Let's look at the text, verses 5 and 6. Paul writes, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Two words. Verse five, you may be sure of this. Verse six, don't let anyone deceive you. Two emphatic statements Paul makes in that text. You, you can bet the house on this, he says. You can be confidently assured of this. You, you can, this, is as, this is black and white. There is no gray in this. My statement right here, what he's about to say, is clear, he says. There's no wiggle room. You may be sure of this. That the sexually immoral, impure, or covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. In other words... That those who live in persistent sexual immorality, those who live in persistent impurity and covetousness, that is, again, let's be clear, that is those who are unrepentant, those who, who persist in sin, he says. He doesn't say those who fall into sin or those who struggle with desire or those who might trip up here or there. But those who say, I know that's sin, but I'm going to do it anyways. The callous heart, he says, the indifferent heart, he says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. None. He says that those who pursue those things have no inheritance because they have nothing to do with the kingdom of Christ. Nothing whatsoever. They are diabolically different. He wants us to be so clear. He wants us to understand well that God doesn't view our sexual sin indifferently. He's not like, ah, they're just humans and they struggle, they're fallen, they just, you know, it is what it is. He's clear. That those who persist in sin will face God's just wrath. In verse 6, he says, because of these things, these things refers to those six sins that he listed. These things. Because of these things, he says, as a result of these things, the wrath of God comes. They were to be convinced, as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, that God cared about their sin. And he warns them that their own indifference to sin, particularly sexual sin, would lead them to eternal damnation. Friend, the point is, you and I must take sin seriously. The point is, in the context of these verses, that we need to take sexual sin seriously in our own hearts. You're not going to change the world. Jesus is changing the world. You do worry about that. But you need to worry about your own heart. And if you are passive 
You think this isn't a problem for me. I would never have an affair. I would never cheat on my spouse. I would never look at pornography. I would never, never, never. If that's your attitude, so be it. And I'll, my door's open when you need counseling because you're going to need it. You don't know how many brothers I've spoken to who would tell me they'd never do it. But they did. We can particularly think everything is okay with us when in reality we are on a sinking ship. Friend, we are masters of creating our own reality where we think everything is fine and dandy when in reality we are stinking corpses. Paul is clear, he says. You will certainly die. You play around with sin. You're going to die. And this is particularly true of our current sexual revolution. Paul here, I think, you know, so, so many people, just, the Bible's not, you know, relevant. This, boy, this is a pretty relevant passage, I think. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Words that have no value. Words that are meaningless. They're meaningless because they're not true. Don't let anyone deceive you. Friend, this area in our lives is particularly difficult. All right? It's difficult because we have relationships with people who are in perverse sexual relationships. And I don't need to list them all because there's so many I don't think I could list them all. And we see same-sex marriages, and we have this temptation. We're like, man, everything just looks happy, look good. Why, what's, you know, it's not right for me to like call that out and say that that's wrong. Friend, it isn't right for you to call it out. You don't need to call it out. All you need to do is say God's calling it out in his word. That's all. That's it. Friend, it would be like you having the cure to cancer and just keeping it for yourself. Is it wrong to know the truth and keep it? I know those those that come about this the wrong way. That are hateful and hurtful. Paul says to speak the truth in love. That means that the motivation for the why you want to talk to that person about their sin is because you love them, not because you want to be right. So often the motivation, the reason why we want to tell people the truth is because we want to be right. And it's not about being right and wrong. It's about being loving. Now, they may not receive it as love. They may not interpret it as love. They may interpret it as hateful or wrong or, or bigotry, whatever. But as long as you know your motive, that's what's most important. Well, Paul here gives us two motivations, doesn't he? We'll look at them very briefly and we'll be done. He says, flee your former sins because if you don't, you're excluded from the kingdom of Christ. In verse, Paul, in verse 5, he writes that it is because of these, or rather, he writes to them that those who practice these things, verse 5, have no inheritance, has no present tense, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. The present tense verb here is very important. Lest you become discouraged if you fall into these sins. In other words, what he's saying is that your present behavior does not reflect your future place or reality or position. In other words, you have no assurance of eternal life if you're living in unrepentant sin, okay? The Bible is so clear about that. If you live in unrepentant sin, you have no hope, no assurance of salvation, nor should you give anyone assurance of salvation if they're living in unrepentant sin. What Paul here is making emphatically clear that if anyone, that is without exclusion, no partiality, anyone who is persistently pursuing sexual sin, is excluded from the kingdom of Christ. They have no hope of eternal life if they continue in that sin. Does that make sense? 
So the distinguish is, do you, are you continuing or are you stopping? This is what he wrote er, earlier, in, or what I mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, a, a very important passage in our day. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Only holy people go to heaven, folks. Only those that have been transformed go to heaven. Or in Galatians 5.21, he says, I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things, that is sexual immorality, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then if that doesn't scare you enough, you turn to Revelation 22. And John is there in the new heaven and new earth. And there's a big wall. And all the people on the outside, he lists. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral. Friends, sexually immoral. That is, those who are persistently pursuing these sins do not have an inheritance in Christ. It is only by giving those things away, by forsaking our sin, do we receive our inheritance. Friend, let me encourage you to flee your former sins, to flee your sin this morning so that you might have eternal life. It is as simple as giving it up and giving it to Jesus. Trusting in him. Well, he offers then us a second motivation here. Look at verse six. If the fact you're not going to have eternal life doesn't scare you enough. Verse six is kind of the, the final blow. Look what he writes there. He says that because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of these things, God's wrath remains. Paul writes to ensure the, his readers that those who turn back have no hope of eternal life, which means that Jesus' propitiatory death on their behalf is ineffectual and that they still owe God their life. The wrath of God is coming upon those, he says, who continue in such ways. And friend, if your life is characterized by sexual sin, sins that perhaps nobody even knows about, that you've never confessed, if that's this, the life that you're characterized by living, then you have no hope, Paul writes, that Christ's death has been effectual on your behalf. It is only those who turn to Christ, stop living in sin, and trust in Him who will be saved from God's wrath. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what we heard in Isaiah 53 in saying, in stricken, smitten, and afflicted. That God is not indifferent to your sin. That He will deal with all forms of sin. Either He has dealt with your sin on the cross of Christ, or He, is, he will deal with you for all of eternity. But friend, do not miss the point. The Bible is emphatically clear that God's wrath is coming upon those who persist in sin. As you heard earlier in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Friend, there is hope in this passage though. Remember in Ephesians 2, Paul wrote this. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, he says this. That in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, he saved us. When Paul intentionally uses the word sons of disobedience there, I believe he does that in order to remind us of what he said in chapter 2. That you don't need to be a son of disobedience anymore. That you can be a son of God by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. Church, let us be clear on biblical sexuality and marriage. Let us hold high by example what is the right view of sexuality. To be clear, sex 
in the confines of a monogamous, heterosexual marriage is the biblical definition of where sexuality is to be expressed. All other forms are sin. Let us live clean lives before the Lord in what we look at and how we love one another. Let us warn and exhort to repentance any brother or sister who is ensnared in sin. Let us warn them with this passage. Open it. Read it to them and remind them that their sin is going to lead them to their death. In Genesis, Moses tells us of the story of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was a little scoundrel. He was a cheater, a little, little snake. And Esau, he, he was no different. He was a man driven more by desire than he was anything. Moses tells us that one day Esau was out in the field. He had been working hard. And see, his little sneaky brother Jacob, little scoundrel, he, he was waiting for Esau or any opportunity to take advantage of him. And Esau was tired. He was wore out. He had a long day of work. And like many of us, when he got home, he, was, he just wanted to sit down and have a good hearty meal. And because Esau was driven by desire, and because he... His God literally was his belly. Jacob tempted him and said, I'll give you this gross soup that I made. Lentil soup. If you give me your inheritance. Your birthright. And Esau, because he loved this world more than he loved his inheritance. He traded his brother. And his brother Jacob got everything and he got nothing. It's a reminder to us what happens when we live by desire. Whatever that desire may be. That if we live by desire, if we do what feels right, we'll end up empty handed. And without eternal life. Let's pray. Father I pray this morning. That each of us would see that a few hours of pornography. An extramarital affair. Vulgar entertainment. Whatever our hearts desire. Is not worth our eternal souls. May we remember the words of our Savior. What would we give to forfeit our souls? What are we giving ourselves to right now? What in our life are we giving our lives over? What, what pleasures are we being satisfied with that are leading to our eternal death? Father, free us from them, I pray. Pray for those brothers and sisters today that are ensnared in sin. Bring us into light. Guard us from sin. Bring us home safely, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.